as in last week, I want to bring to you a theological message, a doctrinal message, one that takes in many verses in Scripture and shows us really who we are in Christ. The doctrine is called union with Christ, and uh, we'll be all over the Bible. So uh, if you've got a Bible handy, you'll want to get ready. And if you don't, you can find one in the aisle in front of you underneath the chairs. Last week, we looked at justification. Justification, that doctrine where we're declared righteous before God. And if justification has been tweaked, corrupted, often twisted for false religious and cults, the union with Christ doctrine has been forgotten. It's just been completely forgotten. And it is in Scripture, as we'll see all over the place in the New Testament. And so I want to bring this out to you. I want to show you in the Bible where it's at and what it has to teach us. It is a a sweet and wonderful doctrine. It's something that shouldn't uh, uh, make you feel condemned, but the opposite. Make you feel uh, like you're blessed, like you should rejoice. It's one that you probably, though, uh, haven't heard of most of your Christian life. We've talked about it some here, but it's often not preached on in churches today. Now, since the the Protestant Reformation, this doctrine of the believer's union with Christ has been very prominent. The Reformers brought this out. Uh, John Calvin had this as a center of his theology. If you read his works, and he was the theologian of the Reformation, uh, he brought this out, and he reminded us as Christians how it's in Scripture, how it's in Paul's writings, how it's in John's writings. In fact, he said, it's the highest degree of importance. Our union with Christ, who we are with Christ, the fact that we're united together with Him has the highest degree of importance. But after the Reformation, other things took prominence. Other battles were were fought. Uh, Justification has always been attacked. And so we often think of that. We often think of sanctification. But how do we attain such things? How do we get those things? And you would say through faith, and you'd be right. It is through faith. But there's something in between faith and justification that we often forget about. We often forget about union with Christ. And so over time, the church has not taught on this as much. And especially in the last 100 years, uh, churches have taken a nosedive when it comes to theology. They don't even teach theology, or if they do, it's bad theology. The most popular theology right now is not biblical. The things that you can buy in in the bookstore, if you were to go to the Christian section of Barnes & Noble would not often be biblical theology, the doctrines taught in Scripture, but they're going to be some other kind of false theology. But because of the church's lack of understanding on this, we've too often been guilty of of seeking the benefits. We talk a lot about God's grace. We talk a lot about the doctrines of justification, sanctification, but we've forgotten that we're seeking something other than Christ Himself. We only get those things through Christ. We focus, rightly so, on sola fide, by faith alone. We focus on sola gratia, by God's grace alone. But it's really solus Christus that I want to talk to you about today. In Christ alone. It's only in Christ alone that we can be justified. It's only in Christ alone that we can be adopted, sanctified, glorified, preserved. It's in Christ. We have to seek Christ. We have to seek Christ. Christ. We often want the benefits that His work accomplished. And we focus on His work and we talk about the cross and that's good. But let's not forget about the person. 
of Christ. Who he is. Let's learn about what he's done and let's learn about who he is and how we are connected, united with him. We can list the things he's done for us, but we often have difficulty, don't we, of speaking about who he is. Who is he? What's his nature? What's his personhood? What does the Bible say about that? Uh, One theologian, a hundred years ago, a Baptist theologian said, Christians more frequently think of Christ as Savior outside of them than as Savior who dwells within. When we picture Christ, we think of him as out there doing something, but we forget the Bible says he's within us if you're a believer today. So we can't separate the works of Christ. Let's talk about the works of Christ, yes, but we can't separate that from the person of Christ. Ultimately, Christianity is about a person. It's not just a set of beliefs. It's not something we have to do. It's not about works. It's about a person. That person is Jesus Christ. It's what he did and who he is that makes Christianity unique. Biblical Christianity is about a person, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we're saved, we don't just get the things that Jesus did for us. Yes, we do get those, but first we get Christ. And through Christ, we receive all of those things that he paid for, that he did for us. We receive the living Christ himself, a living person. Today, he is alive and he is in us. If you're a believer, he is in you. It's not just the things he did, but who he is. And he's not some fictional hero. It's not like the tooth fairy or Santa Claus who kind of just drops off gifts along the way and he says, see you later. When Christ brings these things into our life, when Christ gives us these blessings, he's with us. He's not leaving us. He is there. And so let's not just talk about grace and faith, but let's always include those things in the discussion of being in Christ. Christ himself is the object of our faith. If we have faith, it's not just general faith. It's not just faith that God exists, but it's faith in Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord. If we talk about God's grace, it's not just general grace, the fact that we have things and the fact that God has given us food and a house, but that's common grace. We're talking about saving grace that occurs through Christ, in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson said, Of all the doctrines surrounding the Christian life, this union with Christ is one of the profoundest. It's one of the most practical in its effects. John Murray, another theologian, said union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, which underlies every aspect of redemption. Everything that we think about when it comes to salvation and redemption, it's underlaid by this union with Christ. It is the central truth. It is the foundation. It is the thing that everything we receive comes from, and that's the person, Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, let's define what I'm talking about. What is union with Christ? Let's look at, number one, the nature of union with Christ. Anytime you're studying doctrine or theology, you need to get your mind around a definition. You need to get your mind around what is it? What is this thing that we're talking about? Salvation. Okay, saved from from what? Saved from whom? Justification. What does that mean? What's the right definition? Because there are different definitions out there. And we need to look to the scriptures and find a good working definition. That's what theology is about. And it's hard with this doctrine because Paul calls it a mystery in Ephesians. 
It was hidden before the New Testament, and then he brings it out. But the thing about Paul is he doesn't ever really define it. He just puts it everywhere in his writings. He mentions this phrase, in Christ, in him, or in whom, 73 times in his letters. Over 30 times in Ephesians. So when we went through Ephesians, you saw this come up a lot. Not to mention other phrases that indicate union with Christ, like through Christ, into Christ, with Christ. And so it's, it's difficult because he mentions it a hundred plus times. But you can't find a passage that just opens it up. You have to put all those verses together. But it's there. It's there all over the New Testament, especially in Paul, but also in John. And this, this led one biblical scholar to say, once you have your eyes open to this concept of union with Christ, you're going to find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. If you go through your Bible, especially in Paul's letters, and underline in him, in Christ, with Christ, into Christ, you're just going to be underlining on every page. It's almost on every page. So what do we do with that? Well, we, we study, we read, we look at all the, the verses, and theologians have done this, and we put together a good definition. But before I give you that, I need to tell you what it's not. What is union with Christ not? And if you're taking notes, you definitely want to write these down because this is what people have said that it is, and it's not true. Union with Christ is not deification. It's not us becoming divine. It's not us becoming God. Just because we're united with Christ, we're joined with Christ, does not mean that we're now little gods, like the prosperity gospel preaches, that you can become a little god. We don't get to be gods of our own planets like the Mormon theology teaches. This does not mean that Christ is transferring his divinity to us. That's not at all true. We have to reject that. The Bible does not teach that. Also, union with Christ is is not merely just a moral union between friends. You know, Christ is my friend, and that's it. He's my homeboy. You know, you have these t-shirts today where Christ is belittled. Is he a friend of sinners? He is, but he's so much more than that. He's Lord. He's Savior. And so this isn't just a friendship connection here. It's also not not the sacramental view that is taught in Catholicism. The belief that the believer receives more and more of Christ through the sacraments. That's got to be rejected. There's no scriptural support that we get more of Christ's grace through eating uh, the bread and the juice. Fourthly, it's not to be equated with the act of faith. Union with Christ is not the same thing as having faith. Faith is the instrument. It's the tool that God uses to put us into Christ. Yes. But union with Christ is a separate event. When we talk about salvation, we want to get these different events separated. Because heresy has come from putting these things together. When you blend sanctification and justification, and that might be completely new to some of you to hear phrases like that, but when when you blend them together, then you're heretical. And that is what's happened with many cults over time. So it's not the act of faith. The act of faith brings us into Christ. That's what God uses, of course. We're not just saved on account of faith alone in general. It's faith alone in Christ alone. So what is it? Enough about what it's not. Let's dig into what it is. I'm going to read the definition and then we're going to break it down and go through these steps. Union with Christ, what is it? It's a supernatural, 
vital, eternal, and indissoluble. Personal and corporate, real union with the living and risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from whom all blessings flow. So if you didn't get that, that's fine. We're going to go through it. I'll read it one more time, though. It's a supernatural, vital, eternal, and indissoluble, personal and corporate, real union with the living and risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom all the blessings of salvation flow to us. So let's go down through the six different aspects in that definition, and let's look at the scriptures. Where where do we get that? What do I mean by that? And don't think this is some high and mighty theology for ivory tower theologians. Paul wrote these letters, and John wrote his writings to the average Christian, to the new Christian, to the Christian who's been a believer for 50 years. The Bible was not just written for seminarians. The Bible was written for all who can read it. And it's even written for those who can't read it, and somebody else can read it to them. You can understand this if we break it down and just take a bite at a time. First of all, I said it's supernatural. Number one, supernatural. This means it's brought about by the Holy Spirit. If you're united with Christ, the Holy Spirit has brought that about. Uh, The Holy Spirit has made it happen. The Spirit of God Himself has bonded us, has united us to the living Christ. It's often described as a mystical union. It's a mystery to us because we can't understand how can we, a sinner, be united to the Son of God who became flesh. How does that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit does it. We, we can't speak of the physics of it, but we can speak of how it comes to be. And that's by the Holy Spirit's power. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us about this. It says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. The one body is Christ. And the Spirit is, At the moment of conversion, at the moment you were saved, even if you don't remember when exactly that moment was, God knows when it was, and the Spirit did a work in you. And one of the things, the Spirit did many works in you, but one of them is that He took you and put you into Christ. This is not speaking here about water baptism. This is one of the verses that is not talking about getting dunked under the water like you often see here when we baptize people. This is just using the word baptism like it should be used as immersion. So when we immerse people in water, that's going down and coming up. Well, the Spirit took us and immersed us into the living Christ. He put us into Christ. Go to Romans 8. Go back from 1 Corinthians to Romans 8 and verse 10. Paul speaks again about this in a little different way here. Romans 8, 10 and 11. He says, If Christ is in you, so we're in Christ and Christ is in us. That's union with Christ. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, even though we're still going to die as believers, yet the spirit is alive. Our, Our soul, our spirit will go on forever because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So if you're in Christ, you're put there 
because of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is there as well. The Holy Spirit is in you as well, he says. If Christ is in you, then the Spirit is in you, and the Spirit is the one who has brought that about. That's why it is supernatural. That's why it is something done only by the Holy Spirit. Go to 1 John, 1 John 4.13. And John speaks of this as well. This is not just Pauline. It's not just from Paul. It's also in John's writings. 1 John 4.13. By this we know that we abide in Him. So we just skip right by in Him and we just think, oh, that's we, we abide, we're Christians. No, we live, we remain, we abide in Christ. We're actually in this sphere, in this place called Christ, in this person called Christ. How do we know that we're in Him, though? And that He's in us. We're in Him, He's in us. How does that happen? Because He has given us His Spirit. If we have His Spirit, then we're in Him because the Spirit has put us in Him. You can't have the Spirit without Christ. You can't have Christ without the Spirit. That's why it's supernatural. Supernatural. It can't be explained naturally. You can't do it naturally. You can't put yourself into Christ. You can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to become a believer and put myself into Christ. This is something the Holy Spirit does. It's a supernatural event. Secondly, second part of the definition is it's vital. Vital. Now, we often use the word vital to mean important. It comes from the idea that it's vital for living. You have to have it for life. This union is vital in that it gives us life. We could not live, spiritually speaking, without being united to Christ. And John uses different pictures to show us this. If you go to John chapter 4, or Jesus is using the pictures. John's just recording them. Uh, Jesus is trying to get across this example in his teaching as he's teaching the people, as he's teaching the disciples. John 4.13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. So it's the woman at the well. She wants uh, more water so she doesn't have to come out and get it all the time. And he says, look, if, if you drink of that water in the well, then you're going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You've got to have water to live. You cannot survive very long without water. And Jesus says, if you want to live eternally, then take of me. Receive me in faith. And you will get eternal life from that food and drink that Jesus is. Go to John 6.35. He brings us up again here. And chapter 6, verse 35, and he says, Jesus said to them, so he's speaking now to the people, he's speaking to his disciples, I am the bread of life. He's nourishment. He, he's, he's bread. You've got to have food to survive. And if you want to live eternally, he is the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is our nourishment. He sustains us. You can't have life on this earth without food and water. You can't have eternal life without Jesus Christ. You have to be united to Him to have eternal life. He is our food and our drink. He's also like a branch that has vines. Go to chapter 15. 
And this is a great illustration because he expands it and goes for quite some time in chapter 15 on this. We'll just look at a few verses. Chapter 15 of John uh, in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So if we go back to verse 1 to understand this, he says, I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. So Jesus is a vine. He's the main branch. And from him come other branches. And the Father prunes those branches. And if they're not true branches, He actually cuts them off and throws them into the fire. Skip down to verse 4. Abide in me. Live, He's saying, live in me and I in you. That's union with Christ. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. What happens if you cut off a branch from the main vine? It's going to die. It can't survive without being attached. Because the main vine is the one that goes down and has the roots that feed the branches. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's not talking about business success, lifting a car and throwing it. He's saying you can't spiritually do anything for yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't make yourself go to heaven. You can't save other people. It's only through Christ that anything of the sort can happen. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. He's talking about hell. If you're not in Christ and you just pretend to be and you say, I'm a Christian, one of these days God's going to trim you off. You're going to die and thrown into the fire. Verse 7, if you abide in me, if you're united with Christ, if you live in Christ and he in you, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You can pray. You can come to Christ. You can ask him for things. A great illustration. When you get time later, uh, read that whole section on the branches and the vine in chapter 15. Go now forward to Colossians chapter 3. And here's how Paul sums it up Colossians 3 4. He's going to sum up this idea that we have to have life through Christ. And we do if we're connected, if we're united, if we're attached. If we're one with Christ. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life? See, Paul's less about the illustrations and more about just getting to the theology. Some of us are more like Paul, some more like John. They're both saying the same thing, just in a different way. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, when he comes back, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. But he's our life right now. We don't wait till he comes back and say, Okay, now you're right beside me, Jesus, on the earth. We're united. We're together. No, we're actually connected right now. Spiritually speaking, we are connected. We are completely united with Christ. He's vital. He gives us life. He sustains our life. Number three, the third part of the definition, and we'll combine two words because you really can't separate these, eternal and indissoluble undissolvable, we might say. You can't dissolve this union. Once a believer is united with Christ, it's an eternal bond. It can never be dissolved or broken. 
You can't separate yourself from Christ. No one can separate you from Christ if you're in Him. It's stronger than a cement bond. It's stronger than that super glue that my kids get on their fingers and it doesn't come off for days and days. Go to John again, John 10, 28. The Gospel of John opens this up a bit. and John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give eternal life to them. He gives eternal life to those who are united with Him. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You may not have realized that union with Christ is in that statement because he's saying, I give them eternal life. Now they're connected to me. They're united with me. And Jesus can never perish. So all those united to him can never perish. And by the way, he says, they can't be taken away from me. No one can snatch them away. You're so bonded to Christ that the devil can't come and take you away. You can't take yourself away. You see, some people say you can lose your salvation if you're a true believer. Jesus is saying here, you can't. If you're truly, genuinely saved, no one can break that. It's an eternal bond. Romans 8, 38, Paul says it very explicitly, for I am convinced. Romans 8, 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any created thing. And that includes Satan. He's a created thing, isn't he? Right? He's a principality. He's an angel. Will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You see that phrase, in Christ. We have the love of God. Why? Because we're in Christ. And nothing can separate us. Can these things dissolve that connection? We're stuck with Christ forever, and we're glad about it. And I'm happy about that, because if we weren't, I think we'd try to separate ourselves at times. We would sin, we would stumble, we would fall, and we would say, you know, I'm not worthy. Just cut me off for a while, Jesus. Let me try to sever this connection right here. But we can't. We're with Him, and I'm thankful for that. He's faithful, and He's with us through it all. Here's what Martin Luther said about this. He said, faith must be taught correctly. Namely, that by faith, you are so cemented to Christ, which cannot be separated, but remains attached to him forever, and declares, I am as Christ. And Christ in turn says, I am as the sinner who is attached to me and I to him. For by faith, we are joined together into one flesh and bone. See, faith isn't just this good feeling. It's not just this idea that I love Jesus, but it's the idea that through faith, you're united with Christ, and bam, you receive all those blessings that Christ gives, that Christ brings. Number four, it's personal. It's personal. As a believer, our human person is united to Christ's person. It's an intimate union because it involves our deepest nature. It's not as if your skin is attached only or just your internal organs. It's your whole person, body, your soul, your mind. Everything is united with Christ when you're saved. He gets all of you and you get all of him. Now we don't become Christ and he doesn't actually become us, but we're united in such a way we can't explain. But the Bible indicates that it's, that it's personal. It's one person to another person. So when Christ takes us for his own, he takes all of us. And we are brought by him fully, body and soul, thought life, physical life. All of it belongs to him. The Bible says it's even greater 
than the physical intimacy that husband and wife share in marriage. Go to Ephesians 5.29. Ephesians 5.29. The Bible doesn't shy away from this. It clearly says that these things are to take place in marriage. The sexual union between man and a woman are to take place only in marriage. And it even uses it here as an illustration of our union with Christ. Ephesians 5.29 For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now he quotes from Genesis, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Two become one. Like they were before, Eve was taken, or the rib was taken out of Adam and and made into a woman. They unite back together. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Yeah, husband and wife, that has emotional and physical, spiritual aspects to it, of course. And, And that's great. God honors marriage. God created marriage, created the sexual union. But even better, even greater than that, even closer than that, is Christ to his church, Christ to his people. In fact, Paul then flips it around in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, and he says it works the other way as well. If you unite yourself to someone that's not your wife, you're bringing Christ into that if you're a Christian. 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You're part of Christ. You're part of Him, and He's in you. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For He says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit, little, little s, spirit with Him. We're together with Christ. Or united with Christ. And it's such a strong union. It's stronger than every union we could think of on this earth. And he's even with us when we sin. And Paul says, therefore, don't sin. And think about Christ in you. The union we have as believers with Christ is the most personal and intimate union that will ever exist in the universe outside of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit have the closest union. We, when we're united with Christ, have the second closest union that will ever exist in the universe. And that will never be broken. Once you're united, you're with Him forever. Number five, it's a corporate union. So it's personal. It's person to person, our person to Christ's person. But it's also corporate in that the whole true church is united to Christ. Every believer is together in Christ making up His body. It's not just you. And we often stress the personal relationship with the Lord. But there's others as well. It's called the church. The body of Christ. Let's go to Romans 12.5. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ. And individually members of one another. So we're all connected. It's like a human body. There are different parts to the body, but it's all connected. You know the hip bone's connected to the leg bone? Well... I'm connected to you and you're connected to me and we're all connected to each other because we're in Christ. He's the head, we're his body. It's a corporate union. We're in this with other people. John 17, go to John 17, 22. 
I've got all these verses on the screen, so you should be beating me to those passages. And if you've got electronic format, then you're already there. Cheating. John 17, 22. Now this is, this is the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples. For the ones that already believe in him and the ones in the future that will believe in him. Listen to what he says. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That's amazing right there. The Father gave the Son glory, and He's given it to His disciples, His followers, His believers. That they may be one, the whole body, all of them one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me. There it is again. Union with Christ. He's in us and we're in Him. And the Father is in the Son as well. That they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you have loved me. Now sometimes this is taken out of context. It's used to say that everybody who calls themselves a Christian, no matter what their cult or denomination, whatever they believe, were to be one. It's called the ecumenical movement. That's not what he's saying. He's saying all those who truly have Christ in them, and they're in him, are to be one body. Now, they're spread around the world, so we can't just meet in one location. We meet in various local churches. But true believers here, he's not saying adopt whatever doctrine that comes along, even if it's false, just for the sake of unity. No, doctrine's important. In fact, in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about unity around doctrine. But John is recording Jesus' words here that he's praying to the Father and saying, Father, unite them. Let them be one. They are one in me. Now let's go to Ephesians 2.20. We're corporately united with Christ. We're with others in this. It's not just about ourselves. Yes, you want to make sure that you're in Christ, that you're saved, but there are others that we are together with and serving. Ephesians 2.20. Having been built, he's talking about the church here, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They've come and gone, the apostles and then the New Testament prophets. The ones who were in the various churches before the Bible was written that were prophesying the word of God. That was the foundation of the church. You don't lay a foundation twice, so there's not apostles today, there's not prophets today. That foundation has been laid, and Christ Jesus is the cornerstone of the foundation. In whom, so there's your in Christ phrase, in whom, in Christ, the whole building is being fitted together. And it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So yeah, he's the cornerstone, but he's also the whole realm of which the church is being built up in. And we're all being built together. We're each a stone in that building. We're being stacked together to build up this thing called the church. And it won't be until Christ returns that it's fully built, but you are a brick in the temple of the Lord. And you're stuck and fitted together, Paul says. And you're supposed to support one another and do all the things that members of a body do together. You know, there's a verse in one of the hymns we sing called The Church's One Foundation. And in there we say, Mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. What is that mystic, sweet communion? Well, that's not mysticism. That's a mystic communion in that he's talking about union with Christ. It's, a, it's mystic in that you can't understand it. 
And we're, we're united with all of those whose rest is already won. Already W-O-N, won by Christ. Fifthly, the union with Christ is real. Now you might say, of course it's real. What have you been talking about if it's not real? Well, what I mean by real is it's not a metaphor or analogy. Even though Jesus will use metaphors or analogy to describe it, to get a picture in our minds, because it's, it's so profound, it's so hard to understand how it could happen. At its core, it is a real union. It's an actual union. It's genuine. Uniting of two persons. It, it is so real that the only verse really to, to look at here is Galatians 2.20. And this is as clear as Paul can get. Galatians 2.20, go there. So in Galatia, he's dealing with these false teachings. People are saying they can get to Christ through works of the law. They can earn it. And so Paul begins really preaching at them the truth of the gospel. And in Galatians 2.20, he said, It's no longer I who live. As a believer, you're not trying to work and work and work and try to, to live for God somehow, earning something. It's no longer I who live, he says, but Christ lives in me. It's real. Paul really did try to work as a Hebrew. He really lived in this world as someone trying to earn his salvation. And he says, that's no longer the case. Now that I'm a Christian, now that I'm saved, it's no longer the case because Christ is doing all the living for me in me. Christ has done all the work. He's already done it. And now he lives in me. He's not saying this is some mystery. This is an allegory that you can't understand. Uh, It's not real. It's kind of just a nice picture. No, it's a real connection. It's a real union. Sometimes people use other words. I'll just tell you other words to describe this. And you'll see this even in the Bible occasionally. Participation. Participation conveys uh, partaking in the events of Christ's narrative, in the events of Christ's life. So Romans 6 says that when we go down into the water, it's like we died with Christ. and we come up, it's like we're raised again with Christ and His resurrection. You can think of union with identification. That's another word. It refers to believers' location in the realm of Christ and our allegiance to Him. We identify with Him. He's our Lord. We're citizens of His kingdom. Another word is incorporation. We're incorporated, not as a company, but the idea is we're, we're brought into his body. The corpus is his body. Encapsulates the, the corporate dimension of membership in the body. So all of that to describe what is union with Christ, the nature of it. Why spend so much time on that? It's hard to understand, and it takes a lot of verses to put it all together. But I think that's the best definition that I've found And I wanted to bring that and show that to you. Let's talk about a couple of other points more briefly on when, number two, when this happens, the timing of the union with Christ. When does this happen? And you'll read different theologians on this. Uh, Many in the last century will say, union with Christ is just a picture to describe everything, everything in salvation. But I think it's better, and what, what theologians thought before that, was that it occurs at a certain time when salvation is applied to you, when you're converted. No doubt in Ephesians 1-4, go there, and we get a sense of God's pre-planned union with Christ. Ephesians 1-4. And Paul does give us this one verse to tell us it was all planned by God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says, just as he chose us in him, 
Why did God choose us? Nothing that we did. He chose us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him. He's talking about election, predestination. That God decided who he would put in Christ. And he chose us because of Christ. And he chose who he would put in Christ before everything was created. So timing, it's going to happen when we're saved. But God planned that ahead of time. You can't forget that. But when does it happen to you? You look back on your salvation. You're not going to know. You probably did not write on the calendar if you're a Christian. This is the day I was united to Christ. But if you know the day that you were saved, then it's going to be that day. Some of us know the day and others don't. But whenever God changed your heart, whenever you had faith, whenever you knew something had changed, something real had changed, that you'd become a Christian, that's when it happened. But it's between faith and justification. So last week we said, through faith, through the instrument of faith, you receive justification. Now we're just sort of digging down and opening that up Why? Why do we get justified through our faith? Because we're in Christ. That's when it happens. So Romans 3.24, being justified. So we're justified as a gift by His grace. Okay, keep going. Through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. So we have faith, we're in Christ, and then as a result of that, we are justified because of Christ. You see, if he left out Christ's part, we would just be justified how? He'd be saying by ourselves. But it's through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are, how does it finish? Those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ, then you've been justified as a result of that, and you can't be condemned. You can't be condemned before God because you've been justified. So you're put in Christ, and then you receive justification as a major benefit of that union. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Christ becomes sin for us believers, and, and we get his righteousness. But only in him, it says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. How come you get Christ's righteousness? Because you had faith? Yes. But what did faith do? God used that put you into Christ with the Holy Spirit's power. And as a result of that, he takes away your sin. You get his righteousness. Galatians 2.17, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, I'll just stop in the verse right there. We're seeking to be justified. Okay. But where's that found? In Christ. You can't receive justification outside of Christ. It's only in him. And then Philippians 3.8, turn to that one for sure, because it's a little bit longer. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. When does union with Christ occur? When does it happen? Well, Philippians 3, 8 and 9 tell us. Paul's recounting a little bit of his own testimony here, and he's weaving it together with theology. And he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So everything in the past is nothing compared to knowing Christ. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. They're trash. They're, they're, they're sewage. So that I might gain Christ. And may be found in him. There's the union with Christ key right there. In him. 
He wants to be found in Christ. He's not saying, I'm going to work my whole life so I can be in Christ. He's saying, when I give up everything else, the only thing left is to be found in Christ. I'm in Him. I'm united with Him. And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. I didn't work for it. But that which is through faith, it happens through faith, but it's in Christ. Through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He said it two different ways there. Did you see that? He said, I gain righteousness through faith in Christ, and that righteousness comes from God ultimately through faith, on the basis of faith. Faith is the channel, it's the tunnel, gets you from one place to the next. And we express that, we exercise that. But God is before faith and God is after faith and he's working all around it and granting you that faith. So think of this. Think of union with Christ as the middle of the wheel. It's the hub. It's the the center of a large circle of benefits. And union with Christ is the center. And when you get put into that, you get all the spokes of the wheel that are attached to the center. You get all the benefits of salvation. Justification, immediately. Sanctification, positionally, immediately. Progressive sanctification starts right away. Adoption, immediately. Perseverance starts right away. God will persevere you all the way to the end. Glorification will come later, but it's still a spoke attached to the center of the wheel, which is union with Christ. Or or think of it as a fountain. That's what Calvin said. It's an inexhaustible fountain of all good things. Union with Christ is the fountain, and out of that fountain comes all of these blessings of salvation. So as we study the doctrine of union with Christ, as you read through it, just remember that we need to think separately sometimes. There's, there's faith, there's union with Christ, and then there's all those benefits. Thirdly, the last point here. We know what it does for us, but what should we do, I should say, what should we do to live this out? What are the implications? How do we apply this to our own Christian life? Well, first of all, it reminds us of our identity, our identity in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. People often say, who am I? Who am I as a person? And sometimes they think of their their business, what they do. Maybe they're a mom, so they think of their position in the family or a father or maybe a citizen, a patriot. Who am I, though? And as Christians, we identify with Christ. We're united with Him. And so it reminds us that that's a very unique identification. That's not something that everybody has. And not only that, but we're united with a Christ that never changes. And our union with Him never changes. We don't fall in and out of union with Christ. We don't fall in and out of grace with God as a believer. And so when when times are hard, you're united with Christ. When times are good, you're united with Christ. Our our failings, our weaknesses don't change that. We have to remember that. When we sin, we're still united with Christ. If you're truly saved, if you're truly born again, and Jesus has already finished that work, and his identity has become your identity. When God looks at you, he sees the works of Christ. So that reminds us of our identity if we study, think about this doctrine. Also, secondly, for application, it reminds us of our purpose in Christ. So if you know who you are, then what are you here for? And often uh, there's people who make millions of dollars in the world uh, selling conferences and seminars and booklets and DVDs on just trying to help you figure out who you are 
And why are you here? What am I here for? What's my purpose in life? Well, through union with Christ, you're here for one reason, to glorify God. You can do that through evangelism. You can do that through worship. But you're here to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever, and to live out the mission of the church. What are you here for? I'm united with Christ. You remember that. That's my purpose. My purpose is to serve God. My purpose is to serve Christ. Does this thing that I'm doing, does this major decision that I'm making, does this person that I'm involved with, does that glorify Christ because I'm united with Him? You're not here to sin and live it up. You're not here to just do what you want, live up life and say, yeah, I'm going to heaven someday. That's great. No, you're united with Christ. So whenever you sin, you're, you're bringing him into it. And you need to remember that. What your purpose is here for is not to sin, not to live for you, not to live your best life now, but to live for him, to glorify him. So you need to live that out in your life. Thirdly, application here, the third one, seek unity in Christ with his body. So if you're in Christ, you're in his body. And that involves other people. And you belong to a group called the church. And you want to be with your church. You want to be here together. You want to be with the local body. You're a member of the church. If you're not a member of a local church, you should join one if you're a Christian because that brings you into the body. They get to hear your testimony. The elders do. And and you get to serve. It connects you. connects you closer to the body of Christ. You share in the blood of Jesus, which is more precious than gold or silver. You're not... Looking at your extended family, your blood kin, and saying, those are the closest people to me. No, the Bible says the closest people to you in this life, in this world, are fellow believers. They're closer than your blood family. You can love your blood family. You can want to be with them, take care of them. But believers are even closer. You don't need to hop from one social club to the other because you're united in one body. You don't need to look for support and help elsewhere. If you're part of a true church, you're united together. So participate in that body. Serve, connect, come to church. Also, you have a spiritual communion in Christ. What is that? One, two, three, four. You have spiritual communion in Christ. Remember that as an application, as an implication. He's there with you. He knows what you're going through. He knows your every need. You can go to him. You can pray to him. He is the high priest. Yes, he's a sacrifice, but he's also the high priest. And he's living. He's alive. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And you're connected with him. His body is in heaven. His divinity, of course, he can be everywhere. But his person, his body, is in heaven. So how is he in heaven, but also in us? Well, that's the hard thing, isn't it? We don't know. We can't explain that. But that's what the Bible says. Body's in heaven. And he's in us as well. And you have a connection, therefore, with heaven. You have a spiritual communion with him. And he watches over us. And the Father protects us just as the Father protected Christ upon this earth. Yeah, he went to the cross, but that was the Father's will. And we'll have to go through crosses at, at times, won't we, in our life. But that's the Father's will. The last implication is produce fruit in Christ. So, to run through them all. Our identity is in Christ. Our purpose is in Christ. Seek unity in Christ. Have a spiritual communion in Christ and produce fruit in Christ. Remember the vine and the branch? And Jesus said that the branches will produce fruit. If they don't, they're going to be trimmed off. They're going to be cut off and thrown away. 
we are to produce fruit. Christ is in us. We're in him. We're expected to bear much fruit, to do good works, to serve, to glorify God through our serving. God's going to bring discipline sometimes when we don't bear good fruit, when we sometimes bear a little bit of uh, bad fruit, a little bit of sin in our life. God is going to discipline us. God disciplines his people. Read Hebrews 12. He disciplines his children just like a father would discipline his children that he loves. And we have to sometimes ask, how do we respond to that discipline? Because Jesus said, when God does a little pruning, when God does a little discipline, then suddenly that branch will produce more fruit. Do we respond by thanking God even for the hard times? Because now we're going to produce more fruit as a result of it? We should. So that's union with Christ. You need to ask yourself if, first of all, you're even united with Christ today, though. Are you united with Christ? If, if you were to die today and go to heaven and stand before God, and he was to say, why should I let you in? Why should I let you into my heaven? What answer would you give? Would you say, well, I've done a good thing? My good works outweigh my bad? I went to church. My dad was in church. My friend took me to church. My family were Christians. I was born in America. You see what this is teaching us here, don't you? That only if we're in Christ can we get in. That's it. There's only one way in. And it's not something you look back to and say, I was baptized when I was a kid. It's not something you look back to and say, I had that conversion experience at camp, and then I've lived as a pagan ever since. But I had that. No, it's only in Christ. And there's only one way to be in Christ, to have faith. You have faith, and God puts you into Christ. You must be with Christ to get into heaven. So is Christ in you? John Calvin said it like this, As long as Christ remains outside of us, we're separated from him, and all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and no value to us. This whole sermon, as good as the theology is here, as good as those passages are, won't mean anything to you if you're not in Christ. So you don't get those benefits, friend, unless you have Christ in you and you in Christ. Now for the believer, you've got the greatest joy ever. You realize what those verses teach us? We're with him right now. You're with him when you sleep. You're with him when you go through trials. He's with you through all of that. There's nothing that can separate us from him. He is your life, your reality, your eternal Lord. We need to remember that. Spurgeon said, there's no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. And he's not talking about feeling it with your hands as much as understanding in your mind. The more you remember that and the more you understand this, the more your emotions line up with that truth and you're going to feel that Christ is truly with you. He always is, whether you feel it or not. But Spurgeon is saying we should enjoy that truth. Oh, what joys we have to be thankful for. Don't we have a lot to be thankful for? Christ is in us, wicked sinners that we were, that we sometimes are, Christ is in us, and we're in him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, look to you and thank you for this. How could it be that we would ever receive such a blessing? But we know that many here today, that many here today have Christ, that he's in us and we're in him, and there's really nothing we did to earn that at all, Lord. We did absolutely nothing but sin. We just sinned, and that's what made it possible to have a need for salvation. 
and yet you blessed us. Lord, there's some here today who, who aren't in Christ. They're not united with him. And we know that you can change hearts. We know that you can send your spirit to regenerate, to make people born again. And so we ask that you might do that among us, that someone in this room or more than one person today would hear this message and want and desire these truths to be real for them, these promises to be something that they could claim. So I pray that you would do that kind of work, whether it's a child or whether it's an adult. Lord, we praise you and honor you no matter what. Save whom you will. And we ask that today. All of these blessings, all of these things are for your glory. And help us to glorify you through them. In the name of Christ, amen.